Okay, uh, today's going to be a little bit different. As you can probably tell, I, I, I put a music stand up here instead of a pulpit to kind of give you a visual cue that things are going to be a little different. So you just could kind of have your equilibrium upset for a moment and press in in a different way. Uh, we're going to be talking about some long-term vision for our church today, stuff that we've already been talking about, and that is our desire to reach the unreached, to take the gospel where it has not been and is not currently in the world, to go to places with the good news of Jesus Christ where there is presently no access to the good news of Jesus Christ. So this is not totally disconnected from what we've been learning in Matthew, though we'll be taking a break from Matthew today as we talk about sending to global frontiers. The reason that we're recommunicating this vision in a different way than we did several months ago is that this is big vision for our church for the next 10 to 20 years, and we are the church together. So we need to understand the vision Uh, We need to buy into the vision by the leading of the Holy Spirit and then be mutually invested in the vision. This is not a like the, you know, staff is going to do it or the pastors. This is like us together as a church reaching in obedience to the Holy Spirit to see more people saved. So we'll continue to communicate this vision as necessary and as the Holy Spirit leads us. You can open up in your Bible if you have one to Acts 13. We'll be looking at that briefly in a moment. Acts 13. I'll be speaking for a little bit. Uh, We'll show a video because videos are cool. And then uh, I will have our global missions director, Amber Smith, come up for a little bit. And she'll also be communicating to us, helping us understand the vision. And uh, one of our missionaries, Peter Russell from Africa, who you'll get to know better Thursday night, will also come up. So it'll be an exciting morning. Acts 13, we'll get to it in a moment and read. Uh, Let me pray. Lord, thank you for, again, what you're doing in our church by grace and for your own glory. And we simply ask together now as your people that you would help us to hear your voice, to hear and to discern what it is the Spirit has to say, and you would help us to obey. You would show us what it means for us as saved people to invest in seeing other people saved who currently have no opportunity to do that. We want our lives and we want our church to count for your glory. So help us to hear what that might look like. Where we need to be on the same page as the church, help, us get us on the, help get us on the same page. Where there's some individual callings that need to be heard today, give us ears, Holy Spirit, to hear those things. Help me to communicate in a way that's faithful to you and helpful to your church. We ask it together in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, a little bit of information you already know to start. We are, as a church, reality is a sending church. We see ourselves as a sending church. That's part of our identity. And that expresses itself in three ways. Locally as sent people, strategically through church planning, and globally with missions. Locally as sent people. We all see ourselves as people who have been sent by Jesus as who we are, where we are, amongst whom we know, with what we do, and with all of our drama right now. 
So we're always encouraging each other to live as sent ones, always endeavoring to recapture our sense of sentness and know that where we are now is our current mission field to a certain extent, and we're to live lives sent by Jesus. Strategically, through church planning, you know that we plant churches together, Los Angeles, San Francisco, Stockton, Santa Barbara, Ventura, Boston, London, Honolulu coming up, and there'll be more to come. So part of Jesus' plan to save the world is the planting of churches. So we'll continue to do that as part of our sentness and part of the way that we're called. And then globally through missions, right? Globally through missions. This is the area where we want to sort of laser focus our efforts in the next 10 to 20 years. Now, we've been faithful and fruitful to certain degrees the last decade or so in missions. By God's grace, we have sent about 240 people to over 44 different countries in the last 10 years. So God has been doing good things by grace and for his own glory through us as it pertains to missions. But what we've been talking about the last several months is that we are sensing this new call upon us as Ascending Church. This new call upon us to sort of narrow the focus, to concentrate resources, specifically in the area of global missions, not taking away from our local setness or our church planning, to concentrate our global resources into taking the gospel where it has not been heard before, reaching the unreached and engaging the unengaged. This is a fresh calling, a fresh focusing for us as a church as it pertains to mission. So our global interaction, our global sending and going will look different over the next few years. Part of the way that this is formed, of course, is by scripture. You'll remember what Jesus said in Matthew 24, verse 14. He said this, this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, pantata ethne in the Greek, meaning every ethnic group, and then the end will come. Notice that our Lord Jesus has given us as his church, his people, a mission to take the good news of Jesus, the gospel, to the whole world, to pantata ethne, every single ethnic group in the world. And there will be a gospel witness there. It doesn't just mean that the gospel will be announced once. It means that the gospel will take hold and there'll be some sort of evidential witness of its working there, a viable indigenous church planning movement. He's given us this task, the whole world, the gospel affecting the whole world. He's given us this task. And the task is not yet finished. There's been great progress as we've spoken about, but we're living in a very exciting time. In our lifetime, we could possibly see the task finished where every ethnic group existing in the world has a viable indigenous church planning movement in it. So this is a call of the Holy Spirit and it's also formed by scripture. And so we sense ourselves feeling what Paul felt. Remember what Paul said in Romans 15? Paul said this, my ambition... Note that word. There's bad ambition and good ambition. This is good ambition. My ambition has always been to preach the good news where the name of Christ has never been heard rather than where a church has already been started by someone else. I've been following the plan spoken of in the scriptures where it says, those who have never been told about him will see. Speaking of Jesus, those who have never heard of him will understand. Paul says, I have this ambition, this passion to take the gospel to new places. 
It's not that the gospel doesn't need to go to other places, right? It does. Like we're planting a church in London. There's been a lot of gospel work there for thousands of years. It's not that we don't need gospel work to happen here. We do. And those things will happen. He simply says, I've got this passion, this ambition to take it where it hasn't been before. And it's not as though that were a business plan that Paul just sort of came up with on his own one day. It actually happens to be the business plan of Scripture. Notice what he says. I've been following the plan spoken of in the Scriptures where it says those who have never heard, have been told about him will see and those who have never heard about him will understand. So God has a plan for the world that involves the whole world knowing. This is the biblical basis for mission that we need to understand as we move forward in mission. So this is where I'll show you the first video. This video is about five minutes long. It's a little long, but it's really important information. If I was able to just convey it to you better than the video, I would do so. But the video does better than me. So listen very carefully, okay? This is great theological and missional information, the biblical basis for mission. The Bible is an incredible text made up of 66 different books written by more than 40 authors over a span of a thousand years. It is not just a compilation of a bunch of different stories or a self-help manual or even a devotional book. It is one cohesive story from Genesis to Revelation, the story of God's glory. Let's take a look at his story. In the beginning, God created everything for himself and his glory. At the pinnacle of that creation, he made man so that God could share himself with others. We were told to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth with the glory of God. But man decided that God couldn't be trusted, that he was holding something back from us. We decided to live for ourselves instead of for God, and this filled the earth with sin and selfishness. The generations of man had soon gone so far off track, in fact, that God flooded the entire earth and started over with a man named Noah. When Noah stepped off the ark, God told him the same words he had told Adam, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Once again, however, humanity looks to give itself honor instead of God. Because they all shared the same language, it was easy to communicate and cooperate, so they made a plan. At a place called Babel, they would build a tower up to the heavens, and in doing so, make a name for themselves. They labored to build their own kingdom rather than obey God's command. They had made the same mistake as each of the generations before them. Since mankind had ignored his message to spread his name and his glory throughout the earth, God took matters into his own hands. He scrambled the languages of the people so they could no longer communicate easily with each other. In that moment, God had formed the many different tribes and peoples of the world, so the different people groups spread to the north, the south, the east, and the west. Out of those nations, God chose a man named Abraham and made a covenant with him. God told Abraham that he would bless him and all his descendants, turning them into a great nation that would bless all the other nations. God eventually called this nation Israel, and he began to demonstrate his glory through them in many ways. He gave them a set of laws to live by so that they could live separate and holy lives from all the other nations. In doing so, they would become his royal priests mediating between God and man. By living out his commands in the sight of the nations, Israel would encourage people to love God and love others. 
God also gave Israel a special geographical place on the earth, strategically located in the middle of all other nations. It was in this promised land that Israel would be a light to all nations, showing them the path to God even in the darkness of the world. Sometimes Israel would live out this calling well, understanding God's desire to bless all of the peoples of the earth through them. Other times, though, Israel would fall into the same trap that humanity had again and again, glorifying itself rather than glorifying God. When Israel got off track, God intervened. Sometimes he raised up prophets to remind them of their mandate to bless the nations with the blessings he had given them. Other times he would discipline his people by allowing them to be taken captive by other nations. Regardless, God used Israel, even in their disobedience, to make his name great throughout the earth. But all of this was just the beginning of what God had in store. In all of its ups and downs, Israel grew hungry for a promised Messiah king who would establish an everlasting kingdom that would never be defeated. That, of course, leads us to Jesus. God sent his son Jesus to earth for 33 years to dramatically demonstrate the Father's love for both Jew and Gentile alike. Yes, he was from King David's bloodline, but his genealogy had both Jews and Gentiles in it. His first worshipers were the wise men, Gentiles from the east. Angels proclaimed that his salvation would be for all peoples. Even his baby dedication identified him as a light for revelation to the Gentiles. Time and time again, Christ reminded his disciples, who considered themselves God's favorite, that God's plan from the beginning was to bless all peoples. His life modeled this message perfectly. He became angry when the temple wasn't being used as a house of prayer for all nations. He told parables about the kingdom of God being a kingdom for all people groups. And he preached good news to Jews, Gentiles, rich, poor, educated, and uneducated alike. Jesus served Canaanites, Samaritans, Romans, and Greeks. He was and is a true Messiah for all nations. He lived a perfect life, died a perfect death, and rose again with a perfect resurrection. Then he commanded us to go make disciples of all nations, the perfect words to sum up his ministry. He told us that this gospel of the kingdom must be proclaimed in all the world as a testimony to all of the ethnic groups, and then the end would come. We saw the beginnings of this when the Holy Spirit filled the disciples at Pentecost and told the wonders of God in all the different languages of the world. We saw it continued when Christ called Paul and other apostles to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. It continues even now. We are waiting for the end that we see in Revelation, when the Lamb of God, Jesus, has purchased with his blood people from every nation. Those people will form a multitude that no one can count from every tribe, tongue, and people group, worshiping and saying, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. That's the story of the Bible, a single cohesive story from cover to cover. God's story, the story of his glory among all the nations. But it can't come to fruition until all nations have heard. He invites you into that story. He invites you into that mission. What part will you play? That's helpful, right? <clears throat> biblical understanding of uh, mission, biblical basis for mission. Maybe you like, understand the scriptures in a whole new way, seeing that overview like that. 
And it ends by asking, what part will you play? And that's kind of where we're at as a church. We're, 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 we're answering that call. We're, we're responding to that. We're hearing the Holy Spirit call us into new places and new ways. And we all need to think about what part will we play. Not just us as a church as a whole, but as a whole, we're made up of individuals. So we're trying to be faithful as a sending church, as a missionary church to the call upon us. Just being caught up in God's work that he's already doing. The reason I had you turn to Acts 13 is because there we meet the church in Antioch who were also caught up in the work that God was doing. And they obeyed that. They took seriously the call to the unreached. They were compelled by the Spirit to invest resources and people in the gospel going to new places. Look in verse 1 of Acts 13. It says, Now there were in Antioch, in the church that was there, prophets and teachers. Barnabas and Simeon, who was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene, and Menaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul, that's Paul, Paul the Apostle. While they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. So here we see a work of the call of the Holy Spirit and a church together obeying that call. Five leaders were there seeking the Lord together. I assume they're seeking, Lord, what what do you have for our church? What, What ought we to do? And the Holy Spirit speaks. We're not told how we spoke or what it sounded like or if there was even sound or what if it was an impression. We're not told. We just know that they knew the Holy Spirit was saying, I'm calling you to a new missionary endeavor set apart for me, Saul and Barnabas. And what became clear to them as a church, and they were a new church, a young church, what became clear to them was that some of them would go and some of them would send. In that immediate group, there were three who would stay behind. They would become senders. And there were two who would go, and they would become goers. But the church would be made up of goers and senders. Both of them would have Holy Spirit unction. Both of them would have to obey. And there would be a new work that came from the church in Antioch. Brand new work that came from the church in Antioch. And so what we see them doing to the call of the Holy Spirit and what we're trying to do is to joyfully release resources. That's what they did. They joyfully released resources. Here it was in the form of Paul and Barnabas. Some pretty good resources if you're a young church like, who comes to your church? Oh, the Apostle Paul. No big deal. Right? And then God's like calling the Apostle Paul and then Barnabas, who was kind of a big deal. And then the resources that would have gone along with them. It doesn't matter who it is. The point is, they heard the call and they were willing to invest. And they took on this new identity. Some of us will be goers. Some of us will be senders. But we together will be fulfilling, obeying this call of the Holy Spirit. What they would discover is what we already know in different contexts is that sending is always gaining, not losing. Sending is always gaining. You know, as Americans, we can have this view of, well, I kind of got to like hoard and keep it together and just like, you know, kind of keep it, the self-preservationist mindset. But that's not the kingdom mindset, is it? 
The kingdom mindset is to give ourselves up and to give ourselves away. And that's also the church mindset. So sending, investing, people going is always gaining. Even when you got to give your very best and invest heavily. We've already learned that through our church plants, haven't we? We've invested millions of dollars and some great people and tons of prayer and enormous amounts of effort in planning churches in places like Los Angeles and San Francisco, Boston, Stockton, London, Honolulu, so on and so forth. And there's this incredible gain that comes to our lives through that. In this family of church, there's this incredible gain that we sense through that investment. Because the temptation could easily have been for the church in Antioch. Well, This is a new work in and of itself, and God is doing a great work here, and, you know, there's work that needs to be done here. So why are we talking about going over there? That's always a temptation. That's why so many churches never do anything. They just become ingrown and just look at the needs immediately around them. This church had great beginnings. You remember in Acts chapter 10, when Peter went to go preach to Cornelius, the Roman centurion, in his household? And uh, not Romans, they're in town, cohort, whatever. And to his household, and he preached, and the Holy Spirit fell, and they got saved. It was from that very event that some people went and preached in Antioch, and others got saved, and that church was birthed. Acts 11 tells us about it. So then those who were scattered because of the persecution that occurred in connection with Stephen made their way to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews alone. Notice that. It's sort of been the modus operandi of speaking to Jews alone, but now there comes a change to the Gentiles, the unreached. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks also, non-Jews, Gentiles, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. So there we see the birth of the church in Antioch. And then the church in Jerusalem heard about it and they sent Barnabas, who's kind of a big deal, to go investigate and see if this, is this really a thing? I mean, like a whole new people group is getting saved and there's churches happening. Is this real? We read about that in Acts 11. The news about them reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem and they sent Barnabas off to Antioch. Then when he arrived and witnessed the grace of God, he rejoiced and began to encourage them all with resolute heart to remain true to the Lord. For he was a good man and full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And considerable numbers were being brought to the Lord. A really good work was happening, verse 25. And he left for Tarsus to look for Saul, the apostle Paul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for an entire year, they met with the church and taught considerable numbers. And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. So see, it's kind of like a big deal what was happening in Antioch. And they easily could have fallen into the temptation of great, God's doing a great work here and there's lots to do here. We live in a big place in a big city and there's lots to do. Why are we going there? But we see that the Holy Spirit moved and they were eager to obey and see the gospel go to new places. And in that, they only gained. History tells us they gained greatly as a local church. By the 4th century, Antioch was the third largest city in the Roman Empire. And there were 100,000 Christians in that city by the 4th century. That was almost half the population of the city. Can you imagine if half the population of our cities were like thriving, legitimate Christians, how that would change the face of culture, change the reality of where we live. 
God was doing a great work there in Antioch, but part of that great work was their early commitment to invest in others and other places and see the gospel going forward. There wasn't like a, they weren't just a stop, like it just stopped with them and flowed through them and out to the rest of the world. And that's what we are endeavoring to do. Because Jesus said that we are the light of the world and that a city set on a hill cannot be hidden. And the nature of light is that that light which shines the brightest when you're near to it will also reach the furthest into the darkness. And I believe that God has done by grace for his own glory a cool thing in our midst and we're a bright shining light. That light is is meant to shine far and reach far into the darkness, into new, unknown, unreached places. So that's the nature of light and the nature of the church and what we're endeavoring to do. Now, I'm going to bring up our global missions director. I'm bringing her up because she is the expert in this area. She's the expert that we have on staff. This is her specialty. This is the stuff that she knows. Uh, So I want you to hear from her on this topic as well. So please give some love to Amber Smith. As ascending church, the church in Antioch would have been able to witness God opening up doors for the gospel to go forth into new areas. This is an incredible privilege that the church in Antioch was able to experience, and this is what we desire deeply as ascending church. Now, after Paul and Barnabas were sent out in Acts 13, we see that um, they went on their first missionary journey, and then they would come back and report to the church all that they had seen God do. And this is really exciting. So um, Acts 14, verse 26 through 28. I want to encourage you, um, in light of our announcement for a night for the nations coming up, um, to realize that this is a scriptural uh, thing that the church does is to rejoice in the sending out um, of workers as well as to hear their reports back from the field. Um, It's the church's place to provide two things, um, to both be able to minister uh, to the worker, to commend them for the work that they are doing for the Lord, and then secondly, to bear witness to how they see God working throughout the world. So those two things are really key and go together. And so we see that um, in this scripture. So in verse 26, Paul and Barnabas, they sailed back to Antioch, from which they had been commended by the grace of God for the work that they had been sent out to do and had accomplished. When they arrived, they gathered the church together. They began to report all the things that God had done with them and how God had opened up a door of faith to the Gentiles. And then they spent a long time with the disciples. So again, those two things are critical. Being able to uh, commend um, their worker for how God is working through them. But we as Ascending Church are to bear witness to what God is doing in the world. So whether or not you feel right now like you have a personal connection to a missionary, although I hope you would make that a goal if you don't this morning, um, regardless of that, you have a role to bear witness to how God is moving in the world. And as Ascending Church, we rejoice in that, and we look for the doors that God will open for the gospel to go out into new areas. 
Now, uh, what did Paul and Barnabas experience on their first trip? So what were some of the things that they were reporting back? Well, we can't cover everything that they experienced, but we're going to look at just a few things. So there's going to be a map um, up here for you to see. Uh, Paul and Barnabas were sent out from Antioch, which was in Syria, and then they would have traveled down to the island of Cyprus, and then they would travel up to uh, Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. So that was sort of the area in which they traveled. Now, as they were traveling, obviously, they were going far uh, geographically, right? So that represents miles and miles and miles of travel. Now, as they were traveling geographically, sharing the gospel, they were also taking the gospel uh, to culturally uh, distant peoples. So the gospel was not just traveling far, but it was traveling through various cultures and various people groups. Now, we know Paul and Barnabas had a strategy that they often repeated when they went into new cities. So three times the book of Acts on this journey recalls that Paul and Barnabas went into a city in Cyprus or when they hit Asia Minor, and they went into synagogues and they began to share the gospel with the Jews and the Gentiles that were there. However, um, we see something kind of disrupt that pattern. So when they come to um, Iconium, um, this is Acts 14, verses 5 through 6, um, they move on into Lycaonia, Lystra, Derby, and these surrounding regions. And what's interesting is that as they're entering into um, this area, Paul and Barnabas start their ministry in a public place. Um, there actually wasn't any synagogue there in the area to start with, and there's a few reasons for that. Um, the local people there were a unique uh, people. They spoke their own language. Um, we'll get to that in just a second. Um, so Paul and Barnabas had a strategy, but as they go into this new location, um, their plans change. And so that is a key uh, way in which um, the Holy Spirit does empower the church is we have a strategy going into new places, but yet the strategy kind of falls by the wayside, and the Holy Spirit is the one that ultimately directs how the gospel goes into new peoples. Paul and Barnabas would have been looking for how the Holy Spirit would provide entrance into this people, and it says that they came across a man who was lame from birth. And they saw something in the man's spirit. They saw that he was a man who had faith to be healed. And so they spoke to that man and they said, stand up on your feet. And the man rose. And God had done a miraculous work and had healed this man um, in that moment. And so the Holy Spirit was moving. And so in response to this miracle, obviously the local people had their attention now, we hear um, in verse 11 that the crowd's response was to begin uh, raising their voices and yelling out in their local language. So they were speaking Lycaonian, and this was a combination of corrupt um, Greek, so it wasn't like pure Greek, um, and Assyrian. And so as um, the story unfolds after God had done this miraculous opening of the door, um, Paul and Barnabas then struggle to communicate the gospel to these people because of the language barrier. Um, Paul and Barnabas would preach in synagogues because they could also sort of rely on the Jewish and the Gentile mindset um, who were most familiar with the law, prophecies about Christ, uh, maybe even hearing the stories of who Christ the Messiah was. But none of those tools necessarily were going to work 
um, with this Greek pe- people that had a pagan background and no reference um, to, um, to Judaism. So Paul, uh, by the Spirit, is moved to preach a little sermon where he relies on the culture of the people, pulling from prophecy, poetry, um, a common grace understanding of who God is. Um, however, we see uh, here that there were challenges um, the local people didn't quite understand um, initially what Paul and Bar- Barnabas were communicating, and their, their actual response was to worship Paul and Barnabas um, as Greek gods. And so you can just imagine how disturbing this would have been to Paul and Barnabas, right? Like, they're blowing in the Holy Spirit, they're, they're going into this new community, and this was not the response that they were hoping for, Right? Um, we read even that one of the priests there had attempted to uh, make sacrifice on behalf of the people uh, for Paul and Barnabas. Um, we read that Paul was so distraught that he runs into the crowd and he cries out, why are you doing these things? And then in a desire uh, not to be kind of guilty of blasphemy, because he's kind of receiving praise here, it says that he rips Um, his clothing um, as a sign of his objections to what was happening. Um, So obviously Paul would have been feeling the full weight of cross-cultural stress, right, at this moment. Like that is kind of the epitome of culture shock um, right there. And you think about how challenging this would have been for Paul personally, because we know that Paul relied on his ability to both communicate and to reason with people. We know that he was trained, um, and so for him to go into an environment where he felt challenged to communicate and challenged to reason with other people from a different culture, um, he would have definitely felt like he was way outside um, of his comfort zone. But we see that the grace of God sustained them, um, and they were able to uh, share the word. Um, The people had stopped their sacrifices. Um, Some opposition came um, from Jews from a neighboring city that actually resulted um, in in an incredible incident in which Paul and Barnabas were stoned and then left for dead. Um, But what we see is that several people came to Christ in that city. So the gospel seeds have been planted, and as Paul and Barnabas had actually been stoned and left for dead, these young converts came and stood around them, and they would have witnessed another miracle. Paul, who they thought was dead, they had just seen him get stoned, um, actually rose up and had enough strength to enter back into the city to continue sharing with them before he moved on to the next place. So the Spirit of God and the power of God being poured out with Paul and Barnabas was able to do a work far greater than Paul and Barnabas ever could have done if they were relying on their natural strengths and their natural giftings. And we know that the gospel then took root in that area and that churches then later would be formed. Um, We know that Paul, um, when he wrote the letter of Galatians, he talks to the church, and the church had been formed during this this journey. And he says, remember when I first came to you and preached the gospel? He says, do you remember how sick and weak I was? So we know that when Paul came, um, he was suffering infirmity. Um, We know that he was stoned and left for dead. We also know um, that right when Paul and Barnabas reach uh, Asia Minor, that their helper John Mark leaves. So they're also feeling a little bit like, you know, they lost their helper, their teammate, maybe feeling deserted. 
The Jews were continually um, giving threats of opposition, persecution, um, and there was obviously immense cross-cultural stress, right, with the language and the cultural barriers. Yet despite all that, um, Paul and Barnabas return to the church and they report all these things, and how they frame their experiences is that God had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And how did the church respond? They commended them for the grace of God that was working through them. So Antioch, as an ascending church, had a tremendous perspective that we really need to adopt as ascending church. So three things to highlight here. Um, Number one, God is the one that opens up doors of faith in the world. God saves individuals and can save any person throughout all of the earth. But God specifically works um, to enter the gospel to save whole people groups. And so God is able to open up pathways for the gospel to go forth into whole new cultures and people groups. That's something that God does. Um, Secondly, it's the Spirit of God that empowers the church to engage in what would be considered barriers or the walls in cross-cultural ministry. If you think about all the things that had happened just in that one experience in Lystra, you would realize there was a lot of of opposition and a lot of things that people would interpret as walls in the resistance of the people, the issues of communication. Um, You can go on and on and on. But there was something that the, the Antioch Church deeply understood, and that was that the Holy Spirit empowers the church in ways that are greater than the barriers that they might naturally come up against. Those barriers are real, but the Spirit of God is greater. And then thirdly, um, we realize that the church has fresh opportunity to receive a strengthening in their souls for suffering and for the work of mission. And so this is something um, that we need to give attention to as well. Um, Opposition and hardship in mission is never something to be denied or avoided, but it needs to be taken into consideration as part of God's divine plan in how the gospel goes forth. In Acts 14.22, one of the last things that we see Paul and Barnabas doing as they're coming back home is they are encouraging the believers and they are strengthening their souls, saying that despite hardship, um, through many tribulations, we will enter into the kingdom of God. Um, Now, we live in an exciting time um, where the gospel continues to go forth into new areas. And as a church, we get to ask ourselves, um, how, how much anticipation do we have for the doors that God will open for us to see the gospel go into? So we're going to play just a quick video um, from Frontiers. It's a missions agency. Um, and I'll come back to share a little bit more. We are in pursuit of something seemingly impossible. The many have strived for, but none have accomplished. It's the vision passed on to us by Christ, commanding us to go into the world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, teaching them to follow the one who sends us sharing his message 
with everyone. Today, there are millions of Muslims who remain unengaged, who are searching for the very thing you've been empowered to share, the gospel, a message worthy of following, a message worthy of spreading, a message created for all to hear. want to be a disciple, then you must make disciples, standing fast until all have heard, loving until lives are changed, losing your life so you may find your frontier. In 2010, I was traveling to Ethiopia with a group um, here from Reality, and I was really excited about that trip. Um, God did amazing things on that trip in us being able to be a part of ministry that we're partnered with there in Ethiopia. And one of the things that happened as I was traveling through the capital, Addis Ababa, um, we were staying in a guest house there that had different uh, workers that were coming in and out of the country. Um, I had an interesting encounter, something that I didn't expect and that has really shaped um, some of my experiences over the past several years. So at the guest house in the morning, uh, we were having breakfast and there was an Ethiopian man that was there and we just began to strike up a conversation and I was hearing sort of who he was and what he was doing. Um, And he was um, a man who was a pastor at a church in Ethiopia, and he was being able to share sort of the rich um, history of the church and their missionary efforts. And he had actually uh, been sent out by them um, to Pakistan. And so he was working amongst um, unreached groups in Pakistan. And so it was was very interesting. I'm hearing this, this, uh, this, this Ethiopian man's heart for Pakistan. Um, And he had been able to see how God was opening up doors into Pakistan, into unreached groups. And so he began to challenge me um, as to whether or not I would be able to send someone from our church um, in America to Pakistan. Um, And so, I mean, he, he was... He was so passionate, and it was almost on the border where he was, like, asking me to, like, promise, you know, that, that I would do this. And so um, what I began to do is as I would travel into different places, I would kind of repeat this type of conversation of asking the local church, um, where is your vision for the nations? Um, and sometimes it would be framed, like, if, if there was just one person from reality, um, the church that I'm a part of back home, where would you cry out? For them to be sent to. Um, and th- it just always uh, like moves me to see this picture. And so as I have traveled and had these different conversations, hearing Filipinos plead out um, for workers to be sent to Saudi Arabia, hearing Brazilians that have a heart for places um, that are unreached in India and Bangladesh, um, hearing Rwandan pastors Um, cry out for workers to be sent into Somalia and Sudan. And so um, that gives us this sense that the the passion of the Holy Spirit 
um, to make Christ known amongst all peoples is the passion that every believer receives. And so the church worldwide has this commission to take the gospel not only to their own people, but also to the unreached. So I'm going to show you some information about um, the global church that helps just give us sort of a snapshot um, of the ways in which God is working. So um, there's a photo up that, that shows you a projection of the Christian population um, expected in the year 2020. So that's just in a few years from now. We have seen in the past 100 years that uh, the center for global Christianity has shifted. So 100 years ago, predominantly, um, the church was strong in the West, so America and Western Europe, um, at parts of Latin America. Today, the global church is much more distributed. And so although this is not super precise, you can look at it and see where the larger populations of Christians are, and you can see there's glaring areas around the world where the church is currently not. Now, this picture should give us great anticipation for the fulfillment um, of what we see in Revelation, where there is this globalization um, of the gospel, that there are people in every tongue, tribe, and nation um, who have received the gospel and who, who honor Jesus as their Savior. Now, these changing dynamics have also have implications for the global uh, missionary force, um, if you will. Um, we see that now half of the world's sending countries um, are in the, the north and the west as well as in the south. Um, so we see in a lot of ways countries are sending um, all over the world. In fact, the U.S. has one of the highest numbers for missionaries that we send out and the highest number that we receive from other countries. So this challenges a bit of our thinking from how the state of the global church was about 100 years ago, where early on in pioneer missions, um, there was this understanding that, okay, the U.S. and Europe were kind of the Christian forces in the world, and the rest of the world was just non-believers, and we sent all of our missionaries just out there to the non-believing world, to the mission field. But we see actually the world looks um, very different. Um, one of the implications for this change is that we need to continually assess how we steward our global missionary efforts. And so this is something we've continued to talk about um, here at Reality, is our desire to see um, the imbalance of how global missionary efforts are spent um, sort of remedied so that we can focus more effectively on the unreached. Um, a few statistics for this. Um, so today, most missionaries are sent to mostly Christian peoples. It's estimated that half of the Christians in the world, perhaps 70% of all evangelicals, live in what we have traditionally thought of as being mission fields. So we continue to invest 90% of our recruiting, training, and funding to these same areas. Um, one last picture. Um, if we look at the places in the world that received missionaries in 2010, um, you can try to sort of think about the last slide that I showed you about kind of where the church is and then where missionaries are going to. Um, you don't have to have a photographic memory to realize that those are fairly similar in terms of the same places. You can see that there still remain to be huge um, aspects of, of uh, both places and people groups 
um, that do not have um, workers going to them and that simply do not have access to the gospel. So when we get this information, there's something that the Spirit hopefully does in us that begins to stir in us this desire to break out of this imbalance and to capture a a fresh sense of pioneering to these areas that desperately uh, need the gospel. Um, I'm going to invite up uh, Peter Russell. Um, Peter, you can come on up. Um, so as we get to sort of just delight in um, expectation of how God is going to be moving through reality to open doors, um, we, uh, we, just, we need to remember that this is all uh, God's work, that God is the one that advances his mission in the world. So I just asked Peter to share um, a couple stories. Um, him and his wife, Tammy, have been working with the Maasai for 25 years um, and have seen um, the gospel take root amongst that people. And so um, we're so thankful that we are partnered with them in ministry. Um, and so he's just going to share a few things. Thanks, Amber. So good to be back with you guys. We're here to put our youngest in college, uh, Leighton and Siana, and we actually have uh, Justine and Skyler with us from Arizona today too. So this is a special church service for us to be together as a family. That's one thing we give up as cross-culture missionaries is a lot of family time together. But um, God said you don't give up anything that you won't gain that much more back. And we have seen that to be true. I'm here to testify that good things happen when you go. First of all, good things happen when you pray. Good things happen when you go. Good things happen when you plant seeds. Uh, we went out in 1991 with our one-year-old Skylar, and uh, we began to um, learn the language and, and, and begin to share the gospel with the Maasai. And when we were in this area called the Maasai Mara, we planted a church. And uh, the church seemed to be growing, But after we left, I came back two years later, and the church was completely dead. It was gone. It was it no longer existed, and it really bothered me. It was it was very hard on my heart, and I felt like, man, if I could only tell our supporters, if I if I could give your money back, I would give it back, you know. But because these 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 open doors that Amber is talking about, it's true. That God does prepare hearts, but sometimes the hinges are rusty. Sometimes the doors don't open right at the, at, in the beginning. But did you hear what Amber said? She said, when we get to the end of our strategies, that's when the Holy Spirit works. And it's not that strategies are wrong. They're good. But, but ultimately, the mission to see every tribe and nation at the throne of God is God's mission. And we get to join him in it. Three weeks ago, Tam and I took the twins back to where we had planted that church where it died, and it was resurrected. The church there, I'm going to cry. 300 people meet and praise God there. And in that area where we could hardly find 30 people, there's five churches and 1,000 people. So you see, it's his mission. We get to join him in what he is doing. Tammy and I are the fruit of the prayer movements, the student prayer movements, movements here in the Carpinteria Santa Barbara area. She at UCSB, me at Westmont. We used to meet at the Boulder in front of the library at Westmont and pray for the nations. It's dangerous when you pray for the nations. I was talking about that with Greg Goulart, who's here. I think he's in the service here today. There he is. Isn't it dangerous? I mean, where'd you end up going? Eastern Europe. When you pray, good things happen. When you go, good things happen. 
When you plant seeds, God is faithful that those will germinate and take root. Solomon sends you greetings, Solomon and James. Um, they love this church. You know what they rem- remember about reality? What we just did earlier, the prayer. You guys put them in the middle and all came and prayed for them. They said, I can't believe that church that prays. They just love reality. Solomon and his wife Sarah are now planting churches amongst the Baraguyu who are unreached. And they're also working with the Gogo and another tribe called the Wahehe and another tribe that I can't even say the name. <laughs> so it's really cool that our spiritual kids and grandkids are now producing their own spiritual children. The gospel goes on. His story, history, it continues. And it's God's job. It's his work. In October, Solomon and Sarah baptized their first eight people in Baraguyu. And the Lord is using them. There's a lot of tribal warfare in the area. And God is using Solomon specifically to bring reconciliation between fighting tribes. And all of a sudden, you begin to get this picture. You remember that video with the us you begin to realize that God isn't concerned just about us. He's concerned about them as well. And all of a sudden you realize that all God's children are all around the world. And it's our job and our joy to be able to join him in his mission to see the world be reconciled to him. God has prepared hearts. And just remember that good things happen when we pray. and Good things happen when we go. And good things happen when we plant seeds. God bless you guys. Okay, well, we have overloaded you with good things this morning. And so now we're going to go into a time of just worshiping and waiting on the Lord. How should we respond to what we've heard? First of all, there's ample reason to worship because we are those who have been saved by God's purposes in the world and what he's doing through Jesus Christ. Like We, we are the recipients of God's plan for mission. We, we've already entered into the kingdom through our belief in Jesus Christ, most of you here. So we, we should thank God for the forgiveness that has been brought to us. And then we should ask God, what does it look like for your work and your plan in the world to continue through me? What does that look like? Again, we have to ask that as a church. We're doing that. But we have to ask that as individuals. Am I a goer? Am I a sender? What does it look like to be invested Am I going to spend my time on the sidelines or am I going to be part of what God is already doing in and around the world? So be asking those questions. Celebrate the forgiveness that we have. Ask the Holy Spirit what his call is on your life. We have several families from the church that we're already training to get ready to go. Um, I'm not going anywhere, but I just got back from Indonesia to spy out the land. You remember that? There's a team of us going to the Arabian Peninsula in a couple months to spy that area out as well. We've got teams uh, getting ready for both of those places, but I believe there are more in our church who are called, more families that are called. Maybe today you would hear the voice of the Holy Spirit. And then besides that, I would like to think that we're a praying church. I think we could be better as a praying church. But this is a great opportunity for us to learn how to pray. Is Holy Spirit, what are you doing in the world? And how are we part of it? We want to organize a movement of 100 people from Reality Carpinteria praying for our first teams that will go to unreached places. So more information about that in the future. But be praying. So let's press into the Lord now. The worship team is going to start. Lord, thank you for the grace that has been brought to us in Jesus Christ. Lord, we just got to say, if there's anyone here who is not 
repented of their sins and put their faith in you to be forgiven and enter into the kingdom, would you call them to it today? Would their eyes be open when they call upon Jesus as they repent of their sins and be forgiven? And then would they join with us who have been forgiven, who know that much glory is due your name. Release us as a church into vibrant expressions of worship as we come and we celebrate the Lord's Supper. Meet us there, Lord. Would the cross be more real to us than ever? Would you teach us as a church how to pray, how to respond to your leading, how to press into your presence and develop a passion for your glory? 